Well, good morning. My name is Charles Jones. I'm a pastoral resident here. Uh, I'll be preaching this morning. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to do that. Um, we have been walking through the book of Malachi these last five weeks, and we're actually going to finish today, which uh, is exciting. I love that we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, and I love when we, when we get to the point where we get to finish them, because it's like, okay, cool, now we've done that one. What do we learn? What do we take from it? Like, on to the next one. I love that we, we get to read the Bible together on Sunday mornings. Uh, I know you're probably, many of you are feeling a little bit of what I feel too, of like, oh, good, Malachi's going to be done soon, right? Because it's like <laughs> every week, just like, right, from the Lord. It's like he's just hammering his people. Um, and it's just been every, like, okay, maybe next week will be a little lighter topic. And then it's not. Right, it's just been heavy, and it's been really good, and hard sermons to preach, and hard sermons to hear, um, and yet I'm grateful that we're going through it, because we, we need to hear what God uh, says for his people. Um, and, and I know Sean touched on it last week a little bit, even though it feels like God's just hammering his people, um, a way to look at it that would be helpful, would, if you're a parent, you understand, the, and God doesn't have this struggle, but you understand this struggle as a parent of like, what is good, healthy discipline and what is creating this, you know, rule follower child that doesn't know anything about grace? Or a coach, like how, how far do I push my kids to, to be great or to, you know, fight through the pain so they can get better versus like driving them into the ground, right? And, and so it's this um, helpful idea of like a good coach, a good parent is always seeking to find that line to like grow and love their, their athlete or their child or whatever it may be. Uh, and, and so that's a helpful way to think through what, it, what God is doing with his people here. He's not just mad at them because he's chosen to be mad at them. He's, he's correcting them and calling out their sin so that they can turn to him and grow. Um, so a little helpful context for you. Now, we've walked through these last five weeks. Uh, there's six different like disputes or conversations uh, between God and his people in Malachi. Today we'll be doing the sixth. Uh, and so far, what we've seen over the last five weeks is, is this. The first week, we see God tell his people of his unconditional love for them. He says, I have loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? And then he goes into all these reasons of how his, he loves them unconditionally. And the week after that, we saw God address uh, his people's bringing polluted offerings to him, and, and even worse, the priests approving of it. So God has called his people to bring pure good offerings, bring the best that they have to him in obedience, and yet they're bringing, really, they're keeping the best for themselves and bringing the worst to God. And to make matters worse, the priests who are supposed to be growing the people in righteousness and showing them away to the Lord are actually approving of it and leading God's people away from him. Um, the next week we saw God address the Israelites, and specifically the Israelite men's unfaithfulness to God and to their wives. We saw this unfaithfulness carried out through two big things that worked together, idolatry and divorce. So the Israelite men were leaving the wives of their youth who God had given them for these foreign women and in doing so left the Lord as well to worship these foreign gods. So not only have they cheated on their wives, committed adultery and abandoned them, but they're also doing that with the Lord as they go and worship these foreign gods. The next week, two weeks ago, we saw God address the Israelites' just general disobedience to loving their neighbor. They, call, they were calling uh, the evil good and good evil. They're oppressing the widow 
uh, and the orphan and the foreigner. And instead of being a light to the nations by inviting in and caring for these people, they're oppressing them and neglecting them. And, and what's crazy is that in doing that and in calling evil good and in neglecting all the people, the marginalized that they should be serving, they then have the audacity to look at God and say, where is the God of justice? So as they're carrying out injustice left and right, they then blame God for this injustice that's abounding. Uh, and then last week we saw God address the Israelites' lack of obedience in their tithes. That they maybe were bringing something, but they weren't being obedient to the fullest. Uh, And God is walking through these big, big, huge heart issues uh, among his people so that they can turn to him and know life. They can be obedient. And it's not just for the sake of being obedient. Because God knows the the right way. Um, And what's crazy is, if, if you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, you see that Like a hundred years prior to Malachi occurring, God had delivered his people out of captivity from Babylon. He's answered their prayers. He's brought them, he's worked through the Babylonian emperor who isn't even one of God's people to send the Jews back to Jerusalem to build the, the temple. And you see, before the temple even gets built, the Jews are offering sacrifices day and night and rejoicing and and. It's this beautiful picture of delight and obedience in the Lord. And we're like a hundred years later and clearly everything's fallen off the rails. Uh, which is consistent with God's people's story. Uh, we see, especially throughout the Old Testament, the people of God, God blesses them. He brings them into abundance and obedience. And then they get comfortable and they run after sin and they just run towards destruction. And God continually calls them back. They repent. He blesses them. Repeat. Over and over and over again. So this context that we're walking into in Malachi is not a new one when it comes to God's people. And uh, if you're a believer, you probably feel that same cycle in your own heart happening often, right? So we've walked through these big five themes, and today we're going to finish up with the sixth one. uh, And we're going to be in chapter 3 of Malachi, starting in verse 13. Now there's going to be things in bits and goodness in this passage that we're not going to be able to dive all the way into. Um, at the end of the, the book, it talks about um, keeping and remembering Moses and the law of Moses that he gave at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. We talked through that in Exodus. And he also talks about how Elijah is going to come again and, um, and God's going to do some things. And we're actually going to talk a lot about that when we start the book of John here in about two months, talking through um, John the Baptist coming and Jesus coming and all those things. So with all that being said... Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Um, Thank you that you're faithful to pursue us in our sin. (sighs) That not only um, are you faithful to save us out of our sin when we first come to know you, God, but you don't just save us and leave us. You constantly, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from unrighteousness. You're kind in leading us to repentance, Lord, by just continuing to peel away just junk in our hearts so that we can see it and, and run after you, Lord God. I pray that you would please speak to us through your word. Please help me to teach well. I desperately need you, Lord God. If, if you're not here, Lord, then this is all a total waste, but we're encouraged because you are here. Uh, in spirit, you're moving. And so I pray for those who don't know you, God, that please, God, save them. If you're 
Um, and those that do know you, God, that you would just continue to strengthen us in you and that we would be good Bible readers and that we'd grow in knowledge of you and um, who you are, God. Our hearts are so, we just have a bunch of junk um, and it's hard. And so it messes up our view of you and it messes up our view of others and ourself. And we just ask that you would continue to help us to redeem that, Lord God. Um, thanks for the cross. Thanks for the resurrection. Thanks for your spirit. Thanks that you're still working. Let us see you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 13 of chapter 3 in Malachi. Again, this is the sixth dispute between God and his people. And, and God says this. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So we see a similar pattern here. God says, here's what's going on. Here's my declaration. And the people, all six times, there's always this, but you say, and it's like this arrogant, defiant, like brazen victim response. Like God says, I love you. And they go, how have I loved you? Like, are you really? And here he says, your words have been hard against me. And they say, how have we spoken against you? How have we said been hard on you to hear? And so then God explains. He says, you've said it's vain to serve God. And you've asked, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking his mourning before the Lord? You call the arrogant blessed. And they, they mention to God that evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So they're saying these things. God is saying, your words are hard against me. And they're saying, well, what do you mean? What have we said that's hard against you, Lord? And they're saying, basically, what's the point of walking with God? Um, it's fickle. It's fleeting. It's vain to serve him. Essentially, they're saying there's really no point in serving God. Why should we go around repentant? Why should we go around as in mourning before you? Uh, and one of the reasons is because they're looking at the arrogant and they're looking at the evil and they're seeing them be blessed. So these Israelites, God's people, who are walking in disobedience, are ignoring their own wickedness and their own evil, and they're looking at maybe those who aren't of uh, you know, God's people and seeing, like, they're wicked, and yet they're prospering. We see this throughout the Bible. Like, why are the wicked um, prospering? They're, they're receiving blessings from God, even though they're evil. They should be destroyed. And one commentator pointed out that there's a good chance that the people are seeing this because they're just pouting, right? Like, why do the wicked get blessing when I'm, like, checking the right boxes, Lord, and I'm not getting blessed at all? So it, it exposes in their heart, the people's heart, uh, their, their motivation. It's not to serve God. It's not to delight in God or to walk in obedience to God. But it's actually uh, to do the religious duty so they can get something from God. And now they're just mad because the people who aren't doing the religious duty are the ones getting the, getting the blessing, right? You've never seen that if you have more than one kid. Um, goodness gracious. So the Israelites are saying, like, we see the evil prosper, um, and they're getting blessed, but we're not getting blessed, so what's the point of walking with God? So God says, your words are hard against me, and that's their response. Now, normally at this point in the conversation— God then goes into detail on what he's saying. He explains, here's why I'm saying what I'm saying, and he elaborates on it. But what's interesting is something different happens here. In verse 16, it says this, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, 
and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. So at this point, again, in the conversation or the dispute, God typically just goes straight in and says, here's what's going to happen. But in verse 16, so far we've only seen God and the Israelites back and forth. But in verse 16, it's like the camera pans over to this, like, this room, right, of these, like, this faithful few who fear the Lord, who actually fear the Lord, who aren't being defiant towards him or walking in disobedience. And it says, these who fear the Lord spoke with one another, and, which is consistent with his character throughout the scripture, it says, the Lord paid attention and heard them. And it says, a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So you've seen God interacting with the people, the disobedient, defiant Israelites, and then we zoom over and we see this little, this group, right, this probably not the majority, this small group of people who actually fear the Lord, who are walking in obedience. And God hears them, he pays attention to them, uh, and he says this, he says, they shall be mine. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So God sees the people who actually fear him, who actually love him, and he says, they'll be mine. They are mine and they will be mine. And then verse 18, God says, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So God's making clear, there are two camps. There are the righteous, aka the ones who serve me, who fear me, and there are the wicked, the ones who are arrogant, evil, etc. I think it's important that God says this here because he's saying, once more, you will see the distinction between the wicked and the righteous. And I think he's directly answering the Israelites' comment of, well, the evil are being blessed, and those of us who are trying to walk in you are just weary and we want to give up. And God's saying, man, you've seen, you see the evil be blessed. You think you should be blessed because you're like doing some religious duties, and you're getting it all mixed up. You're, everything's gray, but it's clear like there are wicked and there are righteous, and you're probably in the wicked category, or you are in the wicked category. So when I act, you will see the difference. And he elaborates on this in chapter 4. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So the Israelites are saying, the righteous, are getting, or, the righteous aren't getting anything, or we think we're righteous, but we're not getting anything, and the wicked are being blessed. And God's saying, I'm going to make it really clear who's who, and who gets blessed and who doesn't get blessed. Um, and he's, he's saying, he's making it clear, there's two camps of people here. Uh, you have the righteous, the arrogant, the wicked, the evildoers, those who do not serve God. And then you have those who fear the Lord, those who serve him, those who uh, walk in obedience. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, On this day, it will come burning like an oven. It says, All the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. He says, The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. 
so there will leave them either root or branch. So God's telling his people, listen, the wicked are going to get their due. You're worried about them being blessed right now and you're wondering why God isn't acting in justice. Meanwhile, if God is truly acting in justice, you wouldn't have a leg to stand on either. And God is saying, there will be a day when the wicked will be completely wiped out. He's saying it's burning like an oven. All of them will be stubble. It says not even a root or a branch will remain. They'll be completely obliterated. And it's horrible and horrifying and terrible. And it's, I, when I picture it, I picture just like black, right? There's like fire burning and it's just complete landscape is just gone. And then in verse 2, he says, yeah, but for the righteous, this is what's going to happen. It says, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings or in its rays. It says, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So the wicked are going to get burned up like in an oven, but way worse, right? But those are the words that we can use uh, in Hebrew and in English. Uh, And yet the righteous, the sun, which is normally an all-consuming hot thing, is going to provide healing and not destruction. And it says they're going to go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, most of us uh, don't work on farms, right? So you're like, cool, I'm really pumped to be equated to a calf leaping from the stall. That is not exactly something I dream of. But the idea is a calf is super vulnerable, right, to predators. It doesn't have any defense. Cows are just like, you can tip them over while they sleep. They don't have any defense mechanism, right? They may, a bull might charge you, but a cow, a cow doesn't. And a calf is just a baby. It has nothing to protect it. And yet God is saying there will be no more threat. So you can just go in fear of the Lord, but don't have to fear anything else. Like a calf that can leap from its stalk and run around with youthful exuberance, knowing that it's totally safe. And so in this day when the wicked are gone, you who are the righteous can just rejoice and be free because there's nothing else to fear. And then you see the wicked and the righteous come together in verse 3, and it just says this. It says, you shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So God is making it clear that you don't need to worry. If you fear me, you don't need to worry about the wicked and the evildoers. Now, we live, most of us, in the suburbs, in the greater Phoenix metro area, which is a sprawling, gigantic, suburban, crazy area. Um, So most of us have not lived in fear of, like, direct fear of wickedness or evil coming upon you, right? We all probably lock our doors at night. We lock our doors in our car, and we, you know, keep our wallets in our pockets and things like that, because, you know, what if somebody did something? But you're not worried about somebody coming and kidnapping or killing or raping, you know, your family. But imagine if you were in that, like many of our brothers and sisters around the world, where imminent threats are all around. We, I think, in our culture have a tendency to shy away from passages like these because it's really cut and dry, because God is love and Jesus has saved us, and that's true, and yet God is just And there is punishment for the wicked. And unfortunately, a lot of us in America and and here, we live uh, rather than as like evangelical gospel-believing Christians. We believe that. But then we live our lives as kind of universalist types of people. Like, well, they kind of knew Jesus, so we're just going to throw them in heaven because it's easier to think about, right? And so we don't evangelize because it's like, well, they're good people. 
But like, think about one, we need to start telling people about Jesus because if they don't know him, they're in this category of the evildoer. But if you have an issue with what God is saying here about how he's going to act on the unjust, think of the worst kind of person you could possibly think of. And some of you are in law enforcement and you deal with this on a weekly basis, but the, the child sex trafficker, you know, our prayer should be that they would come to know Jesus so that their sin would be destroyed. And like Saul being converted to Paul, they would be an amazing witness to the kingdom. But our next prayer should be, man, that the Lord would end that injustice before we can even ask for it. Um, you should feel, whether you're a believer or not, you should feel that in you of like, I hate injustice. I hate injustice. And as believers, especially so, because you see exactly what God has called us to and you see the brokenness in the world. So it should give you encouragement that God will one day give those who hate him uh, their due. But God says those who fear the Lord will be healed. They'll be victorious. They'll be free. They'll leap uh, like calves from the stall, it says. And they'll have no fear in that day of anything aside from God's majesty. And so I feel like it's important that we pause on this concept of fearing the Lord. Um, right? In verse 16, chapter 3, it says, Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. God had paid attention to them. He said, they'll be mine, my treasured possession. And then um, verse 2 of chapter 4, Those who fear my name uh, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and so forth and so on. And so God is making clear there's those who don't fear him, those who are disobedient, and those who do fear him, which he equates with those who, who serve him. Um, if you are like me, then this concept of fearing the Lord is probably hard to grasp. Um, I feel like a lot of us walk into this room with, let's just say this, the fact is, Every one of us walk into the, this room with baggage. Um, a lot of us walk into this room with baggage concer- relating to the Lord because stuff's happened to you or you've done stuff and then it pollutes our idea of who God is. And I remember sitting with a group of guys my senior year of college um, and talking through the fear of the Lord because we were working through Proverbs and just trying to grasp, you know, we're like 18 to 21, really no idea what's going on. Um, Trying to grasp, like, okay, so what are some good analogies for, like, the fear of the Lord? Well, fearing the Lord is kind of like, and the best we could land on was, like, if you have a good dad, then you kind of understand, like, kind of sort of understand what fearing the Lord is like. Like, my dad's a good dad, and so therefore I know he's for me, he's going to grow me, but, like, when he raises his voice or walks in the room and I know I've done something stupid, I probably should pay attention, right? Well, then one of the guys in the group said, yeah, but like, I don't really, my dad's never been in the picture. And the next guy said, I have a dad, he's in the picture, but he's not a good dad. I don't under, I have a really unhealthy fear of him. So we were like, okay, well, that's a terrible analogy then, right? Because at the best, it kind of turns into like a respect. Like, uh, my dad loves me and I love him back and so I'm going to try to be obedient, but it still really falls short. Um, we see, let's just go to scripture, right? Psalm 33.8 says this, it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So the psalmist equates standing in awe of God with fearing him. Proverbs 1, seven says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So fearing the Lord creates knowledge and then in turn wisdom and instruction. But those who don't fear the Lord despise those things. 
Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. And so, Proverbs nineteen twenty three says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. So we hear fear and we think afraid. We think terror. And yet these passages, which are four of dozens, talking about the fear of the Lord, lead us to realize it's actually an awe that leads us to rest, satisfaction, safety, security, knowledge, wisdom, all these really, really good things. Um, Tim Keller, who's an author and a pastor, he describes it this way. He says, obviously, to be in the fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord, even though the Hebrew word has overtones of respect and awe. Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. Fearing him means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and beauty. The last few chapters of Job just give us a good picture of what this looks like as Job, who's been faithful through all this suffering, finally asks, you know, kind of asks God where he's been. And God just says, oh, you want to know who I am? Let me tell you a few ways of who I am. And for two or three chapters, just goes in about who do you, who do you think causes the snow to fall? And who do you think, just who do you think does all this? It's me. It's God. You have no idea. And Job's like, okay, yeah, I, my apologies. One analogy that I think works with equating uh, something that we can see and experience and grasp on earth with the fear of the Lord would be the ocean. Now, if you are like my wife, you are convinced that the ocean is full of sharks, so you don't even go in the ocean. So this is a terrible analogy because that would just breed an unhealthier fear of the Lord for you. But if you've been in the ocean, uh, you understand its power. If you just look at it, you see its power. Just like at Huntington Beach, you can see how powerful it is, let alone in the middle of a storm in the middle of the sea. I know it's some people equate fearing the Lord with just respect, but we don't just say like, all right, Lord, I respect you. Because we fear the Lord, it controls everything we do. If we have something in our heart that says, I'm going this way, and God says, go this way, the thing that's in our heart always loses that battle. We always go with where God is leading because we fear him, because we know he's right. And so I know with the ocean, we grew up every summer on the Pacific Ocean, you know, it's taught how to do, swim safely, and if you get caught in a riptide, do this and that, and all these things. And yet, even though we grew up around it, uh, it's still terrifying every single time I go in the ocean, especially if I get, like, up to my chest in the water or out beyond the waves. I know I've tried to kayak in the ocean one time, horrible choice. Every time I tried to turn around to catch a wave, it would just pummel me. I lost the contact, like, bloody lip, like, got smashed against the, bo- the ocean floor, um, I've gotten caught in riptides before and thought for sure, like, this is the end. This is how I'm going to go. Riptide in El Salvador. Bummer. And so you walk into the ocean and you understand, like, this is unknown. It's deeper than I can imagine. It's more vast than I can imagine. And there are creatures in it, and I don't know where they are, so I'm freaking out, right? 
But because you know how powerful it is, it causes you to delight in it all the more. Because you know you have a healthy fear of it, because you know the reality that exists in the ocean, you now can navigate its waters. You can catch a good wave and like, harness the power of it and, and enjoy it. And another example would be, for me, is standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. I hate heights, and yet I always go to tall places because I think it's cool. And I'm terrified of the Grand Canyon. Because, and if like, that's the edge, I'm good here because... I just don't want to be one of the seven people that falls into the Grand Canyon every year. You stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you see how big, a little bit of how big God is because he's created this. But more than that, I understand I'm not going to be flippant towards this giant hole in the ground, towards this giant creation. I'm not going to be passive or blasé or act like I'm bigger or better than the Grand Canyon or this edge. Like I'm not going to fall off because I'm me. I respect it and I am terrified of it because I understand that that's a mile down. I don't want that. I don't want that. And so I stand back and I take in its glory and its power and its beauty, but I don't act passively or arrogantly towards it. Um, So I don't know if those were super helpful, but I feel like they're decent analogies to grasp um, just the greatness of God. When you uh, are in the ocean, you... It's not like a healthy respect. It's, it's a fear. It's something you can enjoy and delight in and yet um, still understand that it's controlling your every move uh, and every choice you make should be made with that in mind. And so for those who fear the Lord, we stand in awe of him. We are blown away at his godness. We, res- we understand and recognize that God is God and we are men. That really, who are we to even question, Right? Because he is, his purposes are higher than ours. His ways are higher than ours. There's things that he does and characteristics of him that we will never know until we get to be with him. Uh, and if we did know every characteristic of him, I don't know if he would be worthy, right? Because, because he's God, he is bigger and just in a different level than we're at. And so as believers, we are called to fear him. To walk in the reality of who God is and let all of our steps be made in accordance with that. If we're seeking to fear the Lord, if our life is lived in fear of him, not because we're afraid because he's like an angry judge. Um, one, one pastor, one of the other redemption congregations put it this way. He said, a, a unhealthy fear of the Lord is I'm good and God is a jerk. Healthy fear of the Lord is God is good and I'm the jerk. Right? So I'm going to walk, establish my steps, seeking to always see what he is calling me to if he's calling to sexual purity and I'm sleeping with my girlfriend and I love Jesus and I'm walking in the fear of him, then I'm not going to sleep with my girlfriend anymore. If he says, don't covet or don't be arrogant, then you should run to him in humility uh, because what he says is greater and better than what you desire. And for those who fear the Lord, we see in this passage that there's really good promises that are involved. Um, one in chapter three sixteen, we see that God hears and pays attention to those who fear him. Um, it says, he says in verse 17, they'll be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. It says, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And he says again in chapter four, you will be healed. You won't be destroyed. You'll be healed. And the opposite of what will come to the wicked will come to you. 
What's unique about this is that God says here that for those who fear the Lord, he'll spare as a man spares his own son. But God chose to not spare his own son so that you could be spared, which is just crazy. Um, God chose to send his son so that he could live a perfect life and die for your sin so that you wouldn't have to die, so that you could be spared. Uh, And as a result, you get all the good promises um, that he gives. So believer, be encouraged. God is really big, and his ways are higher than yours, and his purpose is way bigger than you can understand, and that's really confusing. And yet, he's also love, and he's also good. And so you can trust in him as you're trying to figure out life. Whether you're going through deep loss or you're just like 20 to 25 and have no idea what you're doing with your life or uh, 25 to 100 and also have no idea what you're doing with your life, right? Because that's just how we're all, we all are. As you parents struggle to figure out parenting or foster parents are trying to figure out that, that world, um, trust that God is with you. He's calling you to obedience and he's good. And for those of you who are in this room who aren't believers, who aren't Christians, who wouldn't say Jesus is king, or maybe you say Jesus is king, but like you, nothing in your life shows it, um, man, like it's not good. The reality is you are on the wrong side when this day comes. Whether that's if Jesus comes back soon or when you die, you're not getting the promises of God. And I hate that. I hate it. And I'm a compromiser, so I don't even want to talk about this, but we're going to preach the word. And you need to know that Jesus gives life. That if you're the guy who's abusing or, you know, shutting down his wife or whatever that looks like, oppressing, like we talked a few weeks ago through, through that passage, or you're not being obedient in, in your life and giving all you have to Jesus, God is calling you to come to him so that you can have freedom in him. And there's no promise of, you know, monetary blessing, but you, you'll be blessed because you get God. So if you don't know the Lord, man, like it's not, it's not good. Keep, keep your bravado. Be arrogant. It's just not going to, you're not going to be arrogant when you see God. Um, the good news is he's given you a way out of that, and that's Jesus. So if you walk in Jesus, if you accept that Jesus is God's son, that he has died for your sins, that you are a sinner and that you need forgiveness like that, you're on the good side. You're with the righteous and you can walk in the fear of the Lord. And so the invitation stands that those who fear the Lord continue to fear the Lord, continue to trust in his goodness. And those of you who don't fear the Lord, those of you who don't care about God or think he's just an angry jerk, know that he's a good God who loves and you can walk in that love. Let us do that. Let's pray. Lord, you're good. Um... We live in a culture that doesn't like to do black and white. We like to do gray when it comes to matters of importance, when it comes to spiritual matters especially. And um, I pray that everyone in this room, myself definitely included, would, would recognize that, Lord, you're black and white when it comes to sin. That my friends who are really good people but aren't Christians need you, Jesus. And the horrible person who does the worst stuff, the most heinous things, needs you, Jesus. Thank you that you're a God of justice, as so many of us yearn for justice to be brought when we see so much injustice, Lord. But Lord, I pray that we also wouldn't be like the 
Israelites in this passage and act like um, if we're openly running in unrepentant sin, that we'd act like the victims, Lord, but that we would instead run to you uh, for grace and rest. Thanks, Lord, that you're good. Let us know you. I pray for everyone in this room. Those that know you, God, God, help us to know you more, please. And um, thanks that you love us. You're over us, that you're big, you're holy, you're terrifyingly awesome. Um, And we can be confident in you in that as you do the work. And Lord, those in this room that don't know you, God, man, see how good you are and come to you. Let them be terrified of the reality of their sin, that the end is destruction forevermore. Um, And even now in life, those things lead to death. And yet you call uh, them to life and peace and rest and joy and hope and fullness. Help us to love uh, well, Lord God. Carry us in Jesus' name. Amen.